up for you to have a seat. And as you're being seated, I'd invite you to open your Bibles or bring it up on a device, whatever you might have with you. First uh, John chapter four. First uh, John chapter four is where we're going to spend. Uh, if you're new to Hope Church, you're just jumping into this journey. Uh, we're nearing the end of working through this letter known as First John, and uh, love for you to join with us today. Bring it up uh, on a Bible or device that you have with you. Open it up to the Bible, and uh, John is First John is towards the end of the Bible. It's easier to find if you start at the end and work your way back left, uh, 1 John. And just to just give you a few moments to get there, just to let you know where we're going. Uh, we have this week and next week uh, in 1 John. And uh, it's hard to believe next weekend's Labor Day weekend. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> like, where did the summer go? Uh, so next weekend's Labor Day. We'll finish First John next weekend. The weekend after that, uh, we're going to talk about kind of cast some vision for discipleship opportunities uh, here in the fall, uh, here at Hope Church. Opportunities for you to grow, but also opportunities for you to help others grow. Uh, it's not just about us learning from others, but it's us to be giving away what we've learned and what we know. So we're going to talk about what does that look like as it relates to discipleship. And then after that, uh, through the fall, most of the fall leading up to Advent, we're going to be uh, going on a journey through the Lord's Prayer uh, over those weeks and really looking at it more as a way to live than just a prayer to pray. I don't think Jesus was just saying, just pray this way, but I think he was saying, pray this way and live this way. So we're going to journey kind of through the Lord's Prayer up to Advent, and that's as far as we know right now. So, and then we'll go into Advent, and we'll talk about Jesus coming as a little baby. That's probably where we'll go in Advent, but uh, uh, what text we're going to look at, we're still working that all out. But hopefully you have First John by now uh, in front of you. Um, we're going to think about this theme today, the love of God. And I've shared a quote here uh, in messages I've given, um, probably at least two or three times maybe, a quote from a a pastor, theologian, who's now with Jesus, uh, A.W. Tozer. Uh, He died in the late 60s. Um, A brilliant man, wrote a number of books, uh, really just an incredibly smart guy as it relates to the things of God, and uh, being able to write about them and speak about them. But uh, one of his books uh, that he wrote, maybe some of you have read it, it's called The Knowledge of the Whole. And A.W. Tozer in that book, I believe it's in the first chapter, might even be on the first page of the first chapter, says this, the most, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That, that, that type of statement, um, again, you might agree or disagree, but it, it, just, it just gets us thinking about the reality that how we think about God, the way we think about God impacts how we live. Whether you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, or you're here today and you would maybe describe yourself as an atheist, you really don't care about God, about church, about kind of any of this, maybe you're just here because someone invited you or a family member, and, uh, but how you think about God impacts wherever we might be on the faith spectrum, how we live. And, and I've been thinking about this statement. I want to add something to it, not adding in a way saying I'm improving. I, me trying to improve uh, A.W. Tozer's theology is like trying to say I can teach Michael Simon how to cook a brisket or how I can help Corey Kluber throw a better four-seam fastball. I mean, I just, I can't. I'm, I'm not going to try. Um, but, but what I want to add to this is just to get us thinking about our theme today and kind of just add a little statement in A.W. Tozer's statement, and I hope he's okay with it. Um, but the statement is this. So what comes into our minds when we think about 
how God thinks of us might be, I don't know if it is, I'll just put the might be there, might be the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when you and I think about how God thinks of us, his posture towards us, his thoughts about us, how he views us, might be an important thing about us. How do you think God thinks about you? If you are just maybe you and I in a conversation, no one else would know about um, what you think, what you were going to say. We might say something maybe different in a crowd, but if it was just like, a, I could be brutally honest, we, it might be really telling. When we think about how God thinks about us, I think we all have a, have a bit of a default setting. Like, this is what naturally comes to our minds. Maybe for some, if you are brutally honest, he's displeased. That's, that's, that's the sense, that's the feeling you just kind of continually have. He's just, he's just displeased with me. I'm not doing all the right things. I'm not living the right way. Maybe you would say he's angry because of what you would do. And maybe just your image or picture of God is just, he's angry. He's just continually angry at you. Maybe, maybe some would say, does he even really care about me? I mean, there's a lot of big things going on in our world. There's a lot of things going on in our nation. Does, does God really even care? Does he think about me? Does, does he have thoughts about me? Does, what does his heart say towards me? What is his posture towards me? I can remember uh, different points in my life. There was moments where I, I did sense at times just displeasure. You know, I thought I wasn't reading my Bible enough, and I wasn't praying enough, and I wasn't being obedient enough, and, and I was struggling in different ways. And, and just if you were to ask me, there was different points in my life where there was, if I'm honest, God's thoughts towards me was like, you're just not living up to what I want you to do. I'm not pleased with you. You're just not getting it. And maybe you can relate to that. I'm not saying I feel that way today, but, but maybe you can relate to that. You're just, you're just, just as, if you, you know, I know he's loving and he cares about me, but he's more displeased maybe, with how, how I'm living. And I think there's a variety of reasons how these or ways, these types of thoughts are formed in us. I just want to share a few. I mean, our home environments. Our home environments give off an image of God. So the home environment you were raised in and are being raised in and are raising your kids in, maybe right now, is giving off an image of God. And that impacts us. That impacts us. That shapes us. That that forms us. That forms us. Circumstances that have come into our lives shape us. They shape how we think about God and how he thinks about us. And the church, the church we're a part of, the churches we've been a part of, they help shape. They do, they shape, they form how we think about God and how God thinks about us. So, so all these factors and so many more, all these environments and so many more really do shape to some degree how we think, perceive God thinks about us, which then I think leads to how we live our lives. Because if, if God's not pleased, 
Or if we're not getting it, we're not doing enough, we are going to do our best to try to get it. And we're going to try harder. And we're going to work harder. We're going to always try to get that, that attitude changed. And I think this is something John wants to address. How we, th- how we think God thinks about us. What are his thoughts towards us? What is his posture towards us? And I believe what John, John wants is the people who read this letter, and he wants you and I to know today that God loves us because God is love. He wants us to know, I believe, that God's default setting, his posture towards us is love because it's who he is. Two times in a matter of a short amount of scripture, a short amount of a section of this letter, I, I wonder again as John is writing this, he may be using the pen and the quill, and, and I wonder in such a short amount of time, John was able to write out these verses without having to dip the pen or the quill back in the ink well. Because it's such a short segment of his letter that he wrote all these things and two times he makes this statement. If you have your Bible, uh, just two times in a few short verses, verse 8, four, chapter 4, verse 8, he says this, whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And then just a few verses later, so basically he dips the pen, starts writing, and keeps on writing. We go down to verse 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. The same statement, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. I don't think John made a, made a mistake. I don't think it was, oh, I forgot I just wrote that a few verses before and I'm going to write this again. I think John was very intentional about writing it two times in this section and then leading into what he's going to write next because he's trying to make a point. He's trying to reassure these people who he's writing to, who their faith has been shaken to the core because these, these friends are now teaching something other than they'd heard before. People are leaving. There's confusion. There's pain. There's heartache. There's grieving. They're shaken to the core. Some are saying, you're not even a follower of Jesus because of what you believe. So now John in two times in a short amount of of this letter says, God is love and his heart, his posture towards you is love. Why? Because that's his nature. That's his essence. And that's his character. I want to say everything he does, he does through that. God is love is what John would say. And John is writing to reassure them of this reality. No matter what your feelings say or circumstances say or other people say, John wants them to know that God loves you and his heart towards you is good. What does that matter? Why does that matter? Where because that mindset, that, that understanding, and leads God, the love of God and God's posture towards us does some things for us. And that's where John goes next. First, God's love drives out fear. 
God's love drives out fear. So he says these things, and then he jumps into verse 17. Again, he didn't have verses. I, hope, I think we know that. But, but he, write, he just keeps writing. And right after, in verse 16, he said, God is love. In verse 17, he says this, In this way, love is made complete, or it reaches its goal. It reaches its fulfillment, if you will. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence. We may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. We're living like him. We're, we're living. We are loving and living like him. There's this change that is on display. It's reality. So we can have confidence on the day of judgment. And now, here comes this piece of fear. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. So he's connecting fear with judgment, fear with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So, so we all have fears. Some of my fears were on display yesterday at Cedar Point. <laughs> like, I'm the guy who, like, I'm hold your bag guy. Like... Uh, I'll walk the park with you. I will go. Like, my pace is Iron Dragon, Gemini, and pushing it is the gatekeeper. Like, that's it. Like, but other than that, like, there are some significant fears in me of the Power Tower and Val Raven and Top Thrill Dragster. No way am I getting on that thing. The love that, that, that John is talking about here does not drive out my fear of roller coasters. And it doesn't drive out your fear of snakes and spiders and heights. Like, that's not what John is talking about here. It's not saying that this perfect love, this, this complete love that God has shown us doesn't just drive out all fears that we have. Some have taken this verse. This is kind of one of those verses that you can slap on a coffee mug or a t-shirt, and, and, and it sounds very nice. It's kind of poetic in nature, but, and, and perfect love drives out fear, and it does. But what is the fear that John is talking about. It's judgment. It's the fear of the day that you and I will all stand before God. That's a day that's talked about in the Bible, Revelation 20. It's, it's a day that all of us will have to stand before God. And the, a book will be opened. It's the book of life. And there are names in that book. And those whose name is in the book of life will be welcomed in to God's presence. That's what John is talking about. That day. That judgment day. As a pastor, I can't write you an excuse note and get you out of that day. And what John is saying is there are some who are, who are afraid and thinking about that day and wondering, have I done enough? Does God love me enough? Have I, believe, have I lived the right way? And what John is saying is if you've experienced this love, the love that God has for us, that love is going to drive out the fear of that day. How have we been loved? We don't, we don't have time to read all of these, but just want to read some to be reminded of what John has already said in this letter, to be reminded the people of how they've been loved. Uh, chapter, go back to chapter 2, verse uh, 1 and 2. John said this, uh, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, all of us, we all do. We all sin. We can all raise our hands. Us, John, we do. But if anybody does sin, 
We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ. He's the righteous one. And he is, Jesus is, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Another way John reminded them the way they've been loved. Chapter 3, verse 8. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God or Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil's work. That's why he came. To destroy what Satan was doing. Chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus laid down. He gave up. He laid down his life for us. And then chapter 4, verse 9. It says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that you and I somehow loved God first and loved him enough and our hearts turned towards him and he said, okay, now I'm going to love them. But he first loved us, it says. And God sent his son as an atoning, same what he said in chapter two, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. As we understand more and more the love of God, and the love he has shown already and it continually shows towards us. I think what John is saying is he's writing to these people who are wondering, are, are, we, are, we, are we safe? Are we in? Are we in Christ? And when these people are saying we're not, and John's saying you are because you've been loved by God and loved in this way that you don't have to fear that day of judgment because your name, we'll even get to that, is written in the book of life. Love, this perfect love, drives out fear. Love also compels us. God's love compels me. It compels me. It, it prompts me. It moves me. It motivates me to love others. We've, and you might be saying, oh, here we go again. We're talking about loving people more, and we are. It's all John's been talking about. And the second half of this letter is love one another. And he, he writes in a circular way, so he keeps coming back to these themes and just driving this point home. And here we find ourselves again. This morning, talking about loving one another. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. This is a good verse for us to hold on to in light of even what I mentioned at the beginning of my message last week about what's going on in our nation as we, we saw uh, some white supremacy rallies and, and all of that. And, 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 and again, this is why this cannot be part of a, a person who calls himself a follower of Jesus' life. If you say, what the, when it says love your brother, it's talking about love within the church. So if you as a, as a person are saying that another race is, is less than yours... And you don't love them because of the color of their skin. And you are saying you are a follower of Christ. John would say you're a liar. You're a liar. John says love. We love because he first loved us. Anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. 
And he has given us this command. We talked about how it's a command. It's, it's this ought to. We have, we have to do this because of how he's loved us. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. We, we talked about how it's the command is not this external God just saying, you need to do this or else. It's, it's what he's already changed in us because of all those verses I read earlier. This change has happened in me and it is compelling me to love people who are not like me, who are different than me, who have different backgrounds and experiences, but we are united in Christ. And I'm called, I'm compelled to love. And, and, and to move away from just being redundant and saying all the same things, I thought it'd be good just to think of one practical way we can show love to one another in the body of Christ. And we've talked about this here at Hope before, and I think it's, it's important, especially in light of all that's going on in our world, in our nation, in our communities, to say it again. I think one tangible way we can show love to others, not just in the body of Christ, but that's the way we're applying it to anyone, is by listening. David Augsburger says this, being heard, being listened to, is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Someone taking the time to be in your presence and listen to you. Listen. To not fill in the blanks, but to listen, to ask questions, to be present with you. Are we willing to listen to people? I think a few things affect and impact us being willing to listen. One is we're so busy. We are so busy. We are busy people, and we are going from here to there, to this thing, to that thing, to this work meeting, to that meeting. And so the thought of even having time to sit in someone's presence and give them time is like, how do I even fit that into my schedule? So what do we do? Maybe send a text. We send an email. We share something on social media. And again, those are all communication um, means. But I think when it comes to these types of situations that John is addressing, this call to love one another, John says you can't love, say you love God and hate your brother. So obviously John is saying through their actions, some people are saying, I hate you. I don't know if they're saying with their mouths, I hate you, but with their actions, they're saying, I hate you. So those types of situations don't get reconciled through text messages and email and social media. But those are worked through in presence, listening. What presence does is it causes us to pause and interact, talk, ask questions, ask clarifying questions. Make sure you are understanding what that person is. Pausing or interacting in this way also causes us to imagine what might, what might, why, why might they have done what they did or said what they said to try to put ourselves in their shoes, so to speak. Listening is one of the ways in the midst of what's going on in our nation, in our world, in our culture, in the church. I think that we can tangibly love one another. God's love drives out fear. God's love compels us to love. And God's love allows me or helps me to love God. I might say, wait a minute, what? 
God's love help, allows me to love than God. And that's where John goes. He talks about we're not just God loves us, but we're to love him. And what John gives a practical way, we're to love him. And in chapter 5, it says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves, uh, loves the Father loves his children as well. So he's connecting what he just said there about, if you're saying you love me, the Father, you have to then say, I love his children the church, the body of Christ, people in the body of Christ is what John's saying there. And this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God. And John gives us an explanation. What Okay, we think of love for God. That's a big subject that can be ambiguous. What does it mean to love God? And John says this. To, to love, this is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God has overcome the world. This is the victory that we just sung about. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that has overcome the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son. So so let's let's unpack those verses there for a moment. So John is saying, this is love for God. This is what love for God looks like. Based on how he's loved us, we then love him. And what does loving him look like? One of the ways it looks like is we obey his commands. Now, I think John could be just specifically saying, you love people. That's a command. You love me and you love people. But I think he's maybe in a broad and he's saying you do what I've asked you to do. You live the way I've asked you to live. And you follow his commands. And in a meeting, we hear the word command. Sometimes it's like, oh, God. He's just telling us to, to, to do what he wants us to do. And his, his commands are a burden. They're like, he's just a killjoy. He doesn't want us to have any fun. Friends, I think God wants us to have the best life we can ever have. I think he wants us to have the best life we, ever, we can ever have. I really do. I don't think his commands are to eliminate fun or pleasure or enjoyment. But I think he knows when we do the things he said, don't do this. He knows the destruction and pain that it's going to bring. Pictures on Instagram, it might look fun. Things that are happening, that might look fun. What's happening in people's souls and hearts and the damage those things do to families and people and individuals? Think of even the commandments. It says, don't steal. Don't take what's not yours. Some might say, well, that's not fun. I want that. (laughs) It's not yours. (laughs) Don't take it. Remain faithful to your spouse. And some might say, well, I don't want to. God's robbing me of joy and pleasure in what I want to do. I think God's commands find joy in following them. 
And it's interesting, even the placement of the commands. If you follow the Exodus journey, when, when the Israelites are in captivity, they're in Egypt and they're set free, and then they journey through uh, the wilderness for a number of years, and then they have the commandments. So the commandments aren't given like right on the front end, but first the people of God, are, the Israelites experience God's redeeming love, and he sets them free. They experience his deliverance, and then you have the, here's how you're to live. But first it's understand my love. And then live this way. Friends, we don't try to follow the commands to try to earn God's love. But we are able to follow the commands because we've already received his love and experienced his love. And we've experienced victory through Jesus Christ. And we'll, we'll kind of move through this pretty quickly. Like John, he talks about how, how can we live out the commands? Why can we do that? Because God has set us free. He's given us victory through Jesus who is the Son of God. And then John goes on these next several verses to lay out evidence, supporting and, and just, it's almost like he's driving home who Jesus is. Because people in this context have been debating who Jesus really is. And that's where he goes. He talks about, it's almost like a lawyer presenting a case in a courtroom. Three pieces of evidence, three testimonies. And we'll move through these pretty quickly. First, the testimony of water and blood. Okay, where are we going with water and blood? That's a bit strange. What do you mean the testimony of water and blood? What is that all about? So that's where John goes. Verse 6 or verse 5 says, uh, Who is it that has overcome the world? He who believes in uh, Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the one, talking about Jesus, who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. He did not come by water alone. John wants us to make sure it wasn't just water but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So we'll get to that in a moment. So there's great debate, like why, why does John go to water and blood? Some think um, that when, when it's referring back to John 19, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, and they, uh, after he uh, was realized, the uh, guards realized, the soldiers realized he was dead, they, to make sure, they ran a spear up through his side, and, and water and blood spilled out. John 19, water and blood spilled out from his side. So some are thinking John, well, they know John was there at the foot of the cross, so he saw that, and maybe it's something about Jesus' death when the water and blood came out. Others, and I would land in this camp, are saying what John is referring to are kind of the bookmark ends of Jesus' life. You have the water, which would be referring to his baptism. When he comes out of the water, there's a voice from heaven that says, You are my son, and with you I'm pleased. And then you have the blood. You have his death. And I think what John is, in a way, is saying is, is Jesus, what did, the Son of God did come in the flesh. And he lived on the earth and he died a death so that we might have life. Because there are some people in this context who are saying the Spirit of God came upon Jesus at his baptism, but then as soon as he hit the cross, the Spirit of God left. And he didn't die as God. But he died as a man. And I think what John is saying is no. He is the Son of God. Water, blood, both testify to that reality. The testimony of the Spirit. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Verse 7. For there are three that testify. So we have the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three, the water, Spirit, blood, are all in agreement. And let me just read the first part of verse 9. We accept man's 
testimony. And, and what I think is happening here is John is saying, I've shared this with you. This is my firsthand account testimony. I was there. I, I, I was one of Jesus' disciples. I walked with him. I heard the teaching. We traveled together. I saw the miracles. I was there at the cross when he died on the cross. I saw it happen. And what he's saying is you have man's testimony and you have the spirit's testimony and the spirit is truth. The spirit's testimony and my testimony line up. And it's true. Jesus is who I've said he is and what I've described to you. Don't listen to what other people are saying. And then lastly, we have the testimony of the Father. So when John kind of goes just right up the chain, so to speak, he says, you've had me, you've had the Spirit, you have water and blood, and now we have the Father's testimony in verse 9. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God. It's God's word. Which, is, which has been given, has, uh, has given about his son. Anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And here it is. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And I want to let you know eternal life just doesn't start when you die. But if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have eternal life now. Friends, a few weeks ago, I was at two funerals, one for last week. I, was at a, I oversaw, officiated a funeral for an 83-year-old man, and I, I sat in the, in, the, in the congregation for a, a three-and-a-half-year-old boy. Two, two services, very different circumstances. And I was reminded of the hope that we have. We're not living for this life. An eternal life starts now. So that even when we die, the scripture says, we live. We live. Why do we live? And that's where John goes. Why do we live? God has given us eternal life in this, in this life, that life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Salvation, as I think Pastor Jim said a few weeks ago, salvation isn't just a get out of hell free card. Salvation is possessing God. In a possessing God we have his life in us so that this body is going to die someday. But it's going to live because it has the life, the Son of God in it. And I know many of you do too. John reminds us how God's love allows me, helps us love God. Why is all this important about Jesus' testimony, these, the blood and water, the spirit, the Father's testimony? Why is that all important? Why does that matter? I think that matters because what John is saying is it's an example, a real uh, 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 example we can hold on to it and, and see and read about and talk about when we realize that God is love. He just didn't talk about love, but he showed love in his son. Love in action moves us. 
first responders going up the staircases at, on September 11th. Pee Wee Reese, the shortstop for the then Brooklyn Dodgers, in the midst of such racial slurs and hatred towards Jackie Robinson, stands next to him and puts his arm around him, saying, I'm with him. Jesus, not just talking about love, but putting on the garments of a slave, pouring water in a basin, get down on his hands and knees and washes his disciples' feet. Love. God's love in action. When we think about how God thinks of us, I hope today maybe we've begun to change the default setting. And might you hear and believe and experience that God is love. And every week, on any given week, just a normal, average week, we receive countless messages and all, all, through all different means, ways, media, culture, things people say, do, all sorts of things swirling around us that are saying the total opposite. That are saying the total opposite of that. And friends, that's why it's so important for us to continually come back to Scripture, to prayer, to be reminded of who God is. And today, as we sing a song, as we wrap up our service, maybe you need to just take a few moments just to be quiet and to be still and just to take some time to reflect on God being loving towards you. Maybe, if you're honest, there is displeasure or anger or you're never getting it right or all these other thoughts that are just in your mind right now as it relates to God's posture towards you. You can pray in your seat. The front of the sanctuary is always open just to give us time to listen and to listen to his words and to realize again that God's heart towards us is good. So I want to pray for us and then we'll sing this song together. Lord, I want to thank you for this reminder. I would say it's something we all know that God is love. That you can quote the verse maybe, but do we feel it? Do we live it? Do we believe it? Do we really believe that God's posture, his attitude, his thoughts towards us are loving? He loves us. So, Lord, in these moments, uh, we want to meet with you. We want to spend time with you. So through the song, through prayer, through silence, whatever it might be, Lord, I just pray that you would speak. And how, we think, how you think about us, I really believe, impacts how we live our lives. So minister to us by your Spirit's help. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.